God, we're thankful this morning that we don't rest in something that we have to do. If we had to do that, there would be no rest. But I would not rest if my spiritual life depended in any sense on me. There'd be no rest. And yet, God, you've given us a kind of mercy in which that's not where rest is found. We know that that wouldn't be where rest is found. You've given us a kind of mercy in which the rest is found in one in whom we truly can rest. And so would you help us see that this morning, where we can place our, our ultimate trust, where we can truly find rest in the midst of our trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm so thankful for Neil's testimony. I'm so thankful for the reminder to us, right? It's so easy for us to come in to the context of our life with God and think that we have this life with God because of us in some sense, you know? And and, and that can be our default position. And so I've been putting a lot of thought over the last few weeks especially, trying to write a lot more about this, think a little more clearly about this. Like, why is it that we tend to struggle so much with this reality that we talk about at Gospel Life Church called gospel-centeredness or the way in which we believe the New Testament describes the Bible as a whole, describes discipleship, like describes our life with God, what it looks like to grow in Him. And when I say this, you know, and I, I want to be real clear, I say that I'm putting a lot of thought into why we struggle. I want to make sure at the front end you hear me say, I'm going to have some pointed words here, you know, but I don't want them to fall on you like an admonition from someone who's arrived to those who haven't. It's not the intent. I don't want them to feel shaming to you like if, if, if as I preach, you're sensing conviction and thinking, oh man, I... I think this is how I tend to approach God. I think this is how I've approached the scriptures. I think this is how I've tried to apply things and I can see at its root my pridefulness or something along those lines, right? Like, I don't want you to think that as I bring this to you this morning, I'm, I'm doing this apart from my own failings somehow or I'm standing up above you because that's not true. Like what I'm about to describe to you as a, as a struggle that we have as a Western church it's my struggle. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give very specific examples as to how it's my struggle. So hopefully you see, like, it's not, I'm not claiming to be above this. And yet there are pointed words here. Like a, a, so a quick survey of the issue, from my perspective pastorally. I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but okay, so early American evangelicalism accomplished a lot of good collectively. A lot of good. And when I say evangelical. I just want, I really want to clarify, I'm not making a, I'm not talking about a political category. The problem is now, and really for the last five to ten years, five especially, the word evangelical in our culture has taken on um, more political overtones. It's talking about a political movement. Who do we stand by politically? And that is not at all what I mean by the term or the descriptor. I have some thoughts about that, but we're not going to get into it this morning. But when I talk about evangelicalism and the movement of American evangelicalism, I'm describing, I'm describing a theological movement, a set of beliefs, right, that really began to shape, reshape Western Christianity to a degree, to, to bring us out of 
a modern liberalism that looked at the text, looked at the biblical text as like allegory. And so when Jesus says this, he could mean this or this or this, really a relativizing of the text that was being made popular by, by Western liberalism, Western liberal thought. Evangelicalism came around and reestablished or reformed Western Christianity's views on the Bible. This wasn't something that was a new way of viewing the Bible. Rather, it brought our view of the scriptures in many ways back into line with how the earliest church fathers, the apostles' earliest church fathers, subsequent majority of Christian thinkers throughout the ages, all the way through the Reformation, thought about the Bible. So it was reforming us back to that. There's, there's kind of a movement now attempting to revise that history a bit to make it sound like biblical authority or this word that we use, inerrancy, that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts that the way that evangelicals describe it today is somehow new or different, that we made it up, you know, uh, it's different than the apostles or church fathers or formers. But not only is there no substance to those claims, it's easily proven false. I was going to get into that this morning. I don't have time. We might do a series that addresses some of those kinds of claims uh, following John at some point. So, okay, all of that to say, modern evangelicalism has done a lot of good. A lot of good to bring Reformation back to what early Christians believed. But one area of struggle, and I think it's like, it didn't begin this way, but I think it's, a, it's an area in which there's been like regression, or it's an area in which it, there began some reformation back, but then we started to stray a bit from within evangelicalism, is something we refer to commonly as moralism. So this is the idea that while we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, while theologically we say that that's true, while we confess it with our lips, we acknowledge it maybe intellectually, practically speaking, I still think I can somehow earn God's approval to say nothing of the approval of other Christians. In my own discipleship, by way of my own hard work, okay, and, and so we talk about moralism a lot, right, and, and the dangers of it. If you doubt that this has been a particular problem, you know, for evangelicals, over the last hundred years or so, the easy baseline test for either proving the claim I'm making here true or false is doing a quick survey or a review of children's curricula over the last 100 years. And I'm not speaking as someone who's uninformed on this issue. All right, like, I, I, youth ministry undergrad, served as a youth pastor at a large church for 10 years. I've reviewed countless youth and children's curricula over the years. I've experienced as a child, growing up in evangelicalism, the kinds of stories that were told and the primary point that we're taught at a young age to draw from those stories. And I can tell you that in many ways, the critique that I'm bringing here is a true one. And it's one that we should be willing to hear and, and learn from connect some gospel lines. You know, the, the, I, I would say it's, it's been more rampant certainly even in the past, but I would say that even today, the vast majority of children's literature in the, in the West from within Christianity and curriculum has, has been taught something along the lines uh, of Abraham did X and therefore he was blessed with God because he was so obedient and did X. And so children, you go and do X too so that you can be blessed by God and, and don't do Y because Y is bad. So, do, so avoid the Y and do the X because Abraham did the X and he was blessed. And we'll sing a song about how Abraham did the X. 
And Jacob avoided Y, and therefore he gained God's blessing. So you should avoid Y like Jacob avoided Y. And we, we create from a very young age a storyline of the Bible that's placed into these moral categories of obey, don't disobey. And I, I'm, I'm telling you from the songs we sing, in the songs we sing, we are climbing Jacob's ladder, which let me just say, the whole point of the narrative is that we can't climb the ladder. You know, the whole point of the narrative was that God had to descend to Jacob because Jacob couldn't do it. And yet somehow the song that we get out of it is that we're climbing Jacob's ladder, children of the Lord, you know. You know, the way in which we present heroes who did it, the way in which they're presented in Scripture as those um, who, who did it and accomplished versus actually when we look at the Scriptures, and we've talked about this a lot, you know, you look at the Abrahamic narratives, and what's the theme of the Abrahamic narratives? It's not, it's not the hero who did it. It's promise in jeopardy. God made a promise to Abraham and chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, the promise is placed in jeopardy because Abraham can't do it. And so he needs the entire burden of the promise to fall on the shoulders of the Lord. Okay, so Jacob, good night. By the time you end the Jacob narratives, he's not a very likable guy. But what makes him likable is that in Jacob, we see our own hearts. And in Jacob, we also see God's faithful promises. Okay, so... so um, I really believe that what I'm saying here is true. And at least part of the reason that children's curricula tends to be a good baseline or taste ca uh, test case for what I'm talking about is, is because the way we teach our children is a pretty strong signal of the way that we think Christianity must work. You know, like, because what are you doing when you're teaching kids? You're taking uh, rich, deep theological truths and you're trying to distill them down into the most basic terms so that they'll understand. So we're actually communicating at its most stripped-down base level. Here's how we think Christianity works. Here's how we think we should read our Bibles. Here's how we think the gospel applies or how, how the gospel works, right? Um, and so I, I think it's a good test case. And so listen, in the midst of this struggle, and it's been a struggle, it's been an area in which I think there needs to be continual reawakening to this from within our, our churches in the West. It's from within that, it's not like, you know, oh, all the way up until recently, this is what's been happening. No, like, throughout it, there have been men, there have been faithful men called of God to call us out of that. So like, J.I. Packer, um, guys from the UK, like J.I. Packer, John Stott, men, men more recently like D.A. Carson, Tim Keller, and others who are impactful, have led something of a gospel renaissance in our evangelical culture that I think is very needed, that have stated, look, the gospel isn't just what saves us and gets us into the kingdom, then leaving us to make progress in the kingdom. And that's what the voices, you know, want to push back against gospel-centeredness to say. But the gospel is actually the way we grow. Again, reforming our view on discipleship back to how the earliest Christians, church fathers, thinkers throughout church history, all the way through the Reformation, thought about discipleship. In our contemporary situation, though, like right now, as we do a quick survey, there's still tons of confusion about this term because everyone wants to say they're gospel-centered. You know, obviously, what, what Christian wouldn't want to say they're centered on the gospel? That would sound probably not great. So everyone wants to claim it while simultaneously, you know, it's easy. It's easy for churches, pastors, leaders, to claim the words gospel-centered and to simultaneously place the weight of law on their congregations for spiritual growth. So it really does prompt the question, and I, again, 
I don't, want to, I don't want to position this as gospel life has this figured out, Jeremy Deck has this figured out, just hear me, hear me out. That's, I think, a good way to dismiss what I think, for our hearts to just push away something that is a good and necessary area of growth for us. It prompts the question, why is it such a struggle? And the answer is because it's always been a struggle. The answer is because it's the primary struggle of our hearts. And we see the struggle firsthand in John 13 this morning, Um, because here in our text we see Jesus is going to lay out four gospel principles. So he's going to once again, Judas has gone out. Judas, if you remember from last week's text, he's gone out to betray Jesus, right? And the wheels are in motion, as we'll see. So Jesus is going to lay out four gospel principles. He's going to lovingly walk his disciples through his good news. Really an exposition, he's going to give us an exposition of gospel. Teach us through the gospel. So that his disciples that he's talking to are ready for what's to come. Right? Like, they're about to head into this really dark moment. A moment in which there's confusion. A moment in which there's, like, denial of Jesus. And what does Jesus think they need to hear? You know, to, to make them ready for this to an extent. Or to help them see, to help them see the truth of what's about to happen. Well, four gospel principles, starting in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So remember this this title, Son of Man. It's important here, and it's going to be important in other places in John's gospel. So, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus is saying, it's here. Like, the reason for my coming is here. And, and so what, what is he doing? He's beginning here with what we'll call this morning gospel realization. That is to say, here we, we see the very center of the gospel. Here we see what the gospel is. What the gospel is. So if you remember from last week, Judas has gone out to betray Jesus. And I commented about how Jesus' final words to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. They probably have more of a comparative force than anything else. So probably means something like, what you were planning to do, do more quickly than you were planning. All right? Um, because the hour has come. It's here. It's arrived. And that's interesting, you know, because throughout John's gospel, Jesus has routinely acknowledged that his hour hasn't arrived, that it isn't time yet. Jesus has routinely acknowledged his, his, to, to uh, his disciples, to uh, religious leaders, to his own mother in chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. My hour has not yet come. Right? But now the hour has. Jesus was inching closer to it. Throughout John's account, this hour is, is talked about in terms of the cross. It becomes very clear what John means by hour. He's talking about, about Jesus' death, what Jesus means by hour. He's talking about his own, his own death on the cross. And, and now he's, in, he's saying the time has come. He's been inching closer the last few chapters he entered back into Bethany, so he was in Bethsaida, he was being celebrated, and yet he went back to Bethany where they wanted to kill him, just two miles away from Jerusalem, 
a place where he was being plotted against. Then he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, announced the day before Passover, for hours from the cross. And Judas was really the final barrier that needed to be removed, but with Judas gone, the wheels are in motion. Right? The, the detachment of, of Roman soldiers along with the temple guard will be dispatched to arrest him. He's gone out. And so Jesus can now tell his disciples, now the Son of Man is glorified. At this moment, the cross, this is it. This is the center point. Because the center of Jesus' glory is found within this hour that leads him to the cross. The cross is the center of his glory. That's why Jesus is using the term Son of Man. That's why he refers to himself with this particular title in this particular context. Because, so if you think about the Son of Man outside the New Testament, especially in places like Daniel chapter 7, this title, Son of Man, it just comes loaded with overtones of like God's glory. So this figure of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is someone who is filled with and puts on display the very glory of God. Okay, so that's how it's talked about outside of the New Testament. But then you get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John especially, uh, and, and you see this Son of Man that's associated with glory in, in Daniel 7 is now associated with suffering. And then John later on in Revelation will combine the two. You know, the Son of Man figure in Revelation chapter 1 is, is talked about it very much in terms of how he's described in Daniel chapter 7, displaying God's glory, filled with God's glory, and yet he's one who comes to die. He's a sheep who comes to, to be slaughtered, a lamb who's come to be slaughtered. And so you see in the fullness of this, this suffering servant, the one who brings ultimate glory to the Father because he's suffering willingly, lovingly. Like what's interesting about the language Jesus uses here is he's not referring to some future moment at the end of days when the Son of Man will finally receive his glory. It's imminent in this text. It's happening now. Now the Son of Man is glorified. He says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him when? At once. So Jesus begins this exposition by telling us, do you want to know what the gospel is? Do you want to know what's at the very center of the good news that I've brought to you? It's my hour. It's this event that's about to take place, that you're about to witness, my death on your behalf. The cross is at the very center of the reason we came, the reason I came. The cross is at the very center of the Father's glory. You know? And it's at the center of the Father's glory in a couple of different ways. It's at the center of God's glory because at the cross, Jesus reveals the Father's heart for humanity to us perfectly. Like, this was decreed before time began that the Son would come to die so that God's people could be reconciled with Him again. So He perfectly displays the Father's, uh, the Father's intent, His heart, His love to His people. But the text says He's also glorified in Himself because the cross is his road to resurrection and exaltation and being seated at the right hand of the Father. Right? So the cross is at the center of all this. The same event glorifies the Father and it glorifies Jesus in himself. And it makes a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled to him, bearing our burden of sin, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved. Right? So this is gospel realization. And what I mean by that is we need to have this moment as Christians, in which we see and understand and come to grips with 
this as the very center of the gospel. It's exactly what Neil was describing for us when he said, you know, these gospel messages that talked about the reason Jesus came, the reason he came, the reason he came to die, right? We have to have this moment. The reality that while we were far from God, while we were fleeing from him, while our hearts were in darkness of night, as we talked about last week, the reason he came was to bring us from darkness into light. You know what, for some, that moment might, I, I can't pinpoint exactly where or, you know, it, was, it seemed like a process, but there is a moment of regeneration in which the Spirit of God lets us see the truth of who he is and what he's done, right? So this is what the gospel is. It's gospel realization. And it shouldn't surprise us, though. Okay, so listen, up until now, it's not really out of line with, with how we tend to think about the gospel. But it shouldn't surprise us now that Jesus moves from gospel realization with his disciples, secondly, to gospel preparation. So look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. So in, but then he says, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so this is something that Jesus said to the religious leaders earlier, we'll talk about it, he said, just as I said to them, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. All right. And you know, I want to be as clear as possible. Je Look what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't share, the cross is at the very center of my glory. The cross, this hour that's to come is at the very center of my glory. It's the very center of the purpose for my coming. Simply as either salvation or some kind of theoretical puzzle for us to figure out. Like, it's not merely, this is not merely some intellectual exercise. And honestly, I think we, this is where we get stuck a lot when we talk about how the gospel changes and transforms our lives. Because this is how we tend to think of it. We tend to very quickly, we tend to very quickly want to move beyond the gospel. And so when someone comes to us, or when, when we're confronted with scripture, uh, or we read something that helps us kind of see the gospel is actually how we grow, it's really easy to want to move beyond the gospel quickly because it's not something that I kind of can control or manipulate. You know, like I very much want to be in control, you know, and I, I want to be the one who's in charge of my own growth. I want to be the one who's making the difference, okay? And so it's very easy for us to like, and plus it feels maybe impractical. It's not, but that's how it feels, I think. It feels like a theoretical exercise. So we kind of shut it down and, we're, and we, i got to move beyond the gospel to some other thing. And that's where now all of a sudden there are these other things that creep in as like, this is what really makes me righteous. That I'm doing. Because I'm in control. So we want to move beyond the gospel, but Jesus doesn't. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't move beyond the gospel. He immediately demonstrates the practical nature of the gospel. Like here we see not only what the gospel is, which is what he told us in verses 31 to 32, that it's the cross, it's his hour, it's the center of his glory. But now we see how the gospel works. We see how the gospel works. Jesus doesn't just extend out to them good news of salvation, leaving them to figure out what on earth they're supposed to do when he departs. You know, it's, it's much like how Paul explains the gospel in Galatians, where he's like, guys, you know, Jesus doesn't come and free you from the prison warden, free you from the prison, and then just set you out on your own. You know, like, good luck, I set you free. You know, like, he's not approaching the disciples that way either. He's not saying, look, I gave you. Good grief, you guys. I gave you salvation at the cross. What more do you want exactly? You figure out the rest. Sheesh. It's not at all how Jesus explains the good news. It's 
It's his good news that actively shapes our response. It prepares us for our circumstances. It shapes our response to all the circumstances around us. It's not your circumstances that actually make you feel the way you feel, behave the way you behave, react the way you react. It's what you believe in the midst of your circumstances. And so Jesus is saying, repenting and believing the gospel in the midst of those circumstances actively prepares you. It's going to prepare and shape you for my coming departure. And he tells them as much here. He says, my children which is such a tender way of addressing his disciples. And he follows that tender language with these difficult words of his departure. He wants them to know the hour has come. He's going to be leaving soon. But even though he's saying to them the same thing he said to the religious leaders, right? Where I'm coming, you can't follow. He said the exact same thing to the, to the religious leaders who were opposed to him. It has exactly the opposite effect when he's talking to the disciples. Because when he said these things to the religious leaders, he was essentially telling him, look, telling them, you're going to look for me, but you, you're going to miss me entirely because you don't understand the first part. They're going to seek him, but they'll miss him entirely because they've had no gospel realization. They didn't see the central reason that he came was to die. And so if you don't see why Jesus came, you actually miss Jesus. If you try to say Jesus came for some other reason, you actually end up missing him entirely. And they had a view, of, a view of the Messiah that was completely different from the Messiah that Jesus was saying he was. Okay, so they're going to miss him entirely. And so um, they're told that they die in their sins. They would search, they would not find, they would die in their sins, they would have no hope, because he's, he's hope. He's holding hope out to them. Okay. It's the exact opposite for the disciples, because by way of his grace and mercy, observing these events of the cross, but then by way of his spirit, by way of, of his um, resurrection, they would see the central reason for his coming. They would have gospel realization. They would have hope in the midst of his departure. You know, he goes where they, it's true, he goes where they can't follow, but because they have gospel realization, he goes to prepare a place for them. And so unlike the religious leaders, they aren't told they'll die in their sins. They're essentially told that because he died, their sins would be put to death, and because he lives, they'll live too. That's like, when Jesus tells, him, tells them that he's going to be glorified, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he's, he's essentially telling them everything that I've come to do is true and effective for you forever, you know? And so this is good news, but it's good news with real ramifications, real meaning, real results that change how we live. It shapes how we live in the midst of our circumstances, and it is just not theoretical. It's not pie in the sky. It, it probably does take a different way of thinking about the gospel, and so I think it can be intimidating to us at first, but I think it's really, really necessary for us to do this kind of ap gospel application. Why? Well, okay, so here's an illustration I use a lot in different contexts to try to make the point. My wife Amy and I met at a day camp ministry in Rockford, Illinois, Almost 24 years ago, 24 years this spring, we had talked, we knew of each other's existence in like junior high and high school, you know, um, but I wasn't really a marital material in eighth grade. <laughs> um, took, took a while. So then, okay, 24 years ago, in the spring, we, we, we had our first real conversation. 
And at this camp, so I was overseeing the third through fifth grade campers and, and, and the counselors that were over them. I was one of the three team leaders at the camp. We had probably around 100 campers. Amy was overseeing kindergarten through second grade campers and counselors. And we would, you know, we'd be in the office together, like planning and preparing our, our day every day throughout the summer. But one of the features at this camp was this pop machine in the gym. Soda machine? I don't know where you're from. Uh, and it was notorious for getting jammed up. Okay, so these kids would bring a bunch of quarters to camp. This was back when pop was 50 cents, okay? So um, they'd bring a bunch of quarters to camp, and they, I don't know what, I just remember like these first graders, like with armful of Barks root beer, you know, crossing the gym. But they'd be buying pop throughout the day from this machine. But what would inevitably happen was that their quarters would get stuck. So they'd come into the camp office with distraught little looks on their faces, especially if they were new, and um, talk about the pop machine stealing their money. So I'd have to walk out there knowing full well what the problem was, and all I would have to do is kind of come up and give the machine a good, like, thump. Just thump it. When I would do that, you'd hear it. You'd hear the coins drop, ta-tink, ta-tink. And then you'd hear this deep inward stirring or groaning noise from the bowels of the machine, deep from within it. And, and then it would bear the fruit of the soda or pop. You know, it would come. And kids would look at you like you were some kind of superhero who could force the machine to submit. But that wasn't the case. It wasn't the case, right? What was happening? The reality was the money had gone in. It just hadn't registered. It just hadn't registered at all. The coins had gone in, but, you know, there was, there was coins that went in, but it, it, they just hadn't dropped. And that was the problem. And that's how we can be as Christians. You know, like, there was nothing happening from within the machine because the coins didn't drop. Well, this is why we get stuck in moralism. There's a sense in which the gospel goes in. We can pass a justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone exam if we were to get it. Yeah, I think that's true. But the coins haven't dropped. We don't see how the gospel connects to life. And it's when the coins of gospel realization fully drop that, that it causes this deep inward stirring that you can practically hear, this groaning of joy from within us, a groaning of hope and joy of what's to come. And we begin to see not only what the gospel is, but how the gospel works to shape us, how it gives us a hope that changes us in the midst of every circumstance as it would result in the kind of hope that would serve as gospel preparation for the disciples, you know, gospel preparation for every circumstance. But it doesn't stop there. Verses 34 to 35. Look there with me. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you have gospel realization. Just walk through it again. Gospel realization, the cross at the center, not my own efforts or activity, but the activity of Christ. The reason he came. Gospel preparation, that good news then actively shapes my life. It prepares me for every circumstance. It's not my circumstances that make me feel the way I feel, right? It's what I believe about the world. You know, it's what I believe about God, what I believe about the gospel. Okay, so it shapes every circumstance. And in these principles now, uh, you know, so we see not only what the gospel is and how the gospel works, but here we find in gospel application how far the gospel extends. How far the gospel extends 
so I was, I was recently listening to a panel discussion. This was um, hey, maybe a handful of months ago on the problem that I was talking about earlier, in which everyone wants to use this term gospel-centered. And a lot of the, the discussion was kind of like, maybe we should just stop using this phrase, gospel-centered, gospel-centered, um, as a moniker for everything, because now everyone's using it, you know, and there's a lot of confusion. So they were kind of discussing its value. And um, someone was noting, you know, this is a term that's often used without really being understood or applied, which is ironic because the gospel-centered movement was created to combat the problem of not understanding or applying the gospel, right? So, but, but in this discussion, one of the contributors said something like this, and it's really stuck with me and helped me think about how to frame this. He said, at least part of the problem, at least part of the problem is that nearly every Christian would agree that the gospel, act, and they're right, nearly every, every Christian needs to agree that the gospel is at the center of the Christian faith in that we have salvation and that we would not have salvation apart from what Christ has done, right? So you can't be a Christian without this view that I wouldn't be a Christian apart from God's saving grace, right? So at, at baseline, everybody says it's central in that way. But where there tends to be misunderstanding is it's not simply central in that it's at the center, but that from it, goes out in every direction. So, so you have the gospel at center, but what gets missed is from that center point, then the gospel extends out in every single direction, like, like the spokes from a wheel covering every area and going out for infinity, you know, like in every direction. That's the idea. This is why our mission statement at GLC is rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus. Because the good news of Jesus shapes all of life. Not just some aspect of life. Not just helping us with the religious bits. Not just helping us with prayer and Bible study. You know, but like all of life. Everything. So that we can say that like every area of discipleship uh, failure is a failure to apply, shake out the implications of the gospel, apply the gospel there. And every success in discipleship is because we've just applied God's grace and mercy. We've seen how the gospel shapes and changes the way in which I respond to those things. So we see how far it extends. It extends to all of life. We have the good news of what Christ has done for us. Discipleship looks like rooting our lives so deeply in it that all of life sees its effect. All of life is shaped. And so we see an example here. Jesus gives his disciples a real example of gospel application. Here's one central way in which the gospel shapes you, how it's at work in you. It results in love for one another, right? You can't just come in with your moral checklist of spiritual disciplines and fruit and say, okay, so the gospel shaped me in the religious areas. I do really good with Bible memory and Bible reading and knocking my devotional, daily devotional out of the park. I attend church perfectly. You know, I haven't missed a Sunday in a long time. I serve on, you know, in, in various ministries at the church, all these things. So, like, I'm checking off all these things. But then, you, you know, you don't love others. Here we see a real, it results in love. The gospel results in love. And to the degree that such genuine love is experienced from within the church, look at how Jesus phrases it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So he's rooting it in his own in what he's come to do, how has he loved us? He's loved us by giving himself for us that though he lived this perfect life, he's now, though he deserved to be embraced by the Father at the end of his life, 
Though we deserved death, He's now taken on our death that we might know God. So, so just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. That, that gospel shapes our loves, you know? Uh, it shapes our loves. And so to the degree that it's, to, to the degree that it's there, it's evidentiary of his, of his work at work within us. But to the degree that it's not there, by this all people will know that you're my disciples, right? To the degree that it's not there, there becomes this question as to whether or not there's been any gospel realization in the first place. You know, and that's not to say that we're going to perfectly love, because we never will. The, from within the life of the church, you will have a relationship struggle. You will. There are going to be times where you leave, and it's sad, and it's hard, and we, we want to, like, apply the gospel to it, to, to, to minimize this and to grow in it. But there will be times in your life where you'll leave a genuine church, a church that loves Jesus, but you'll feel unloved for various reasons. Why? Because this isn't going to happen perfectly. There are going to be times that are going to be difficult relationally. So it's not talking about perfection, but it is saying, it is saying there will be growth in our love for one another to the degree that we've had gospel realization and understand what the gospel is and, and, and we see how it prepares us in all circumstances, we'll be able to apply it. We'll see how far it extends. And I can prove it to you. I can prove that, you know, this is not primarily something you do. Rather, it's the result of Jesus, something Jesus did within you because Jesus calls this commandment new. You know, and that might be confusing at first, especially for the disciples. Um, they might be thinking, wait, how's this new? Doesn't the Torah, doesn't the law instruct us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, Deuteronomy 6, and therefore do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against the people of God, but love our neighbor as ourselves. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus chapter 19, and of course they're right. They're right. So in what sense is it new? Well, the Torah does call them to that, but they're unable to do it. You know, the Torah does call them to love, but they're actually unable to do it. This is why we can prove that this isn't by way of our own efforts. If, if it was by way of our own efforts and we could actually accomplish it, there wouldn't have been need for a Savior. But Jesus comes, and in Him we have a new standard for it. Jesus giving Himself up for it, but not only so. Because of what He's done, we have a new means by which we can accomplish it. We can actually see how it's the gospel at work in us that does this. How it's when we understand, like, I, I truly have all the love and acceptance I need in Christ, you know, and so I'm able to love others freely without this like transactional, I'll love you dependent on what you can give me because I have everything I need in Christ. So I can just be freed to love others the way that he's loved me. And we start to see how that gospel shapes the way that we approach one another in the life of the church. Carson's super helpful here. Look at this cycle. Look at this cycle of, this is why... Repent and believe is, is discipleship at every level. Listen, he says, the more we recognize our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher his standard appears. The higher his standard appears, the more we recognize in our selfishness, our innate self-centeredness, the depth of our sin. And the more we recognize our sin, the more we recognize his love at the cross. And the more we see that, the more we see his standard, the more we see like what he calls us to and we want to live according to it. But the more we see that, the more we see our sin, which then makes us fall back on his love, right? So like the cross gets bigger and bigger. And you know, in recognizing our sin, we don't become more sinful, quite the opposite. We actually become less sinful because we're becoming more reliant on what he's done to save us. It reminds us of, uh, you know, Bob Thune, Will Walker, Gospel-Centered Life. 
where he talks about how God's grace moves us to see our sin, which moves us to repent and believe the gospel, which moves us to experience joy in him, which leads us to more of his grace, which leads us to see more of our sin, you know, which leads us to repent and believe. And the whole Christian journey is made up of repenting and believing, applying the good news of Jesus, applying his grace and mercy to every area of life. Gospel application, this is how far it extends. All of life, all of life. So we see gospel realization, what the gospel is, Jesus going to the cross for us that we might have life in him, gospel preparation, how the gospel works to bring about a new life within us, gospel application, how far that gospel extends to give change in every area of life. But then the text concludes by looping us back to the very beginning in many ways, which what I'll refer to finally is gospel desperation. Gospel desperation. Here we see why it's at the center, why the gospel is at the center, why it has to be. Absolutely has to be. Uh, Look at verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Okay, there's a lot to say here, and we'll actually come back to it in as we get further in the narrative. The primary thing we need to notice together here this morning is Peter's initial impulse. And it's, it's the impulse he'll continue, continue to have on this night. It's the impulse he's shown throughout Jesus' ministry across all four gospel accounts. But before we're too hard on the guy, we need to see that it's our impulse too. Because here we see what I almost entitled gospel confusion. I almost entitled the, the fourth point here, gospel confusion. And the reason I almost entitled the section that way is because here you have exactly the same kind of gospel confusion we've been talking about, you know, that we talked about earlier, that struggle that that many churches are experiencing, many Christians experience, that, that we struggle. Like, the gospel's just been unpacked for Peter. The, the center of God's glory, the hour has come. It's going to prepare you. Like, it's his work and not Peter's work. And yet, from within Peter, you have this assertion that he can actually do it. And not only that, but like he can do what only Jesus can do. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to lay down his life for Peter. And Peter's saying, I'll lay down my life for you. Like I'm able to do what only you're able to do. And and Jesus says, Peter, it's the opposite. Jesus came to do for Peter what Peter could never do for himself. But here you have Peter stubbornly clinging to the belief that he can do it. And Jesus tells him, you can't. You won't. Actually, he'll fail. But Jesus came because he already knew that that he would fail. Jesus came because we all failed in Adam, right? But Jesus came to be that second Adam who would be the one who would succeed so that through him and through his work, we, we can grow in his likeness. You know, so like I decided to call this gospel desperation because it's in Peter's example here that we see why the cross is so central. Like Jesus had to come to die precisely because he knew that we could not do what's required of us. Peter can't do what's required of him here. But his statement asserts that he can. Peter's been told throughout this account that he can't do what's required. But his statement asserts that he can that he can do what Jesus does. Now listen, Peter will one day lay down his life. He will be invited to a new way of life that's shaped by the gospel. He'll follow Jesus. He'll follow him all the way to a cross. But the only way he can do it, 
And we'll talk about that in chapter 21. But the only way he can do it is to experience a kind of heart transformation that, that leads to it. Jesus doing him what he can't do for himself. Not Peter somehow working up enough strength to acquire the spiritual discipline now that he's been saved, necessary to follow. You know, It's not how this is pictured. Like it's gospel desperation because we are all, along with Peter, absolutely desperate for Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Even when the primary impulse of our heart is to still somehow stubbornly cling to the idea that we can do it. We stubbornly cling to the idea that our churches and ministries will grow because of our ingenuity and creativity. That we can grow in the likeness of Christ because of our ability to move our way up a ladder or the steps or the stairs and chairs of spiritual fruit. We can work up enough obedience to make God and others approve of us. We can't. You know, it's interesting. Uh, so again, like this isn't, this isn't Jeremy Deck saying, I've figured this out, what's wrong with all these other churches or Christians or pastors, you know. And it can be easy to adopt kind of like, a, thank you God that I'm not like the, this Pharisee, you know, like real pride, which is evidence of why we need Jesus. But let me just share here. I've had this repeated experience in my life in which someone will say something and I'll entirely ignore it because I don't think it applies to me. And so I'll be vulnerable with you as a pastor here a little bit. Like I, I go to seminary, and I was actually talking to a friend about this just this past week. I go to seminary, and I'm told being a pastor can be painful. It can be, particularly, it can be a particularly painful and heavy weight to bear, like real pain. And, you know, I'm sitting there, 25-year-old Jeremy. And the guy telling me this, he's been a pastor for like 20 years. He's a theologian. He knows, he knows and loves Jesus, knows and loves the church, has far more experience than me. But 25-year-old Jeremy, psh, he's like, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure he's right. It's painful. It's heavy. I'm sure he's right, but I mean, it's like he's saying this for the other guys. Some of these other guys really need to hear why it's painful and heavy, but like I know myself well enough to know that I can, I'm able to actually uh, go about this differently so it's not so painful and heavy, you know? And then somehow I'm surprised by the pain and weight of it. It is, it is particularly painful. It can be particularly painful for a lot of reasons, pastorally. But I had those, many people, mentors in my life who shared that with me. And I, you know, I stubbornly believed that I knew better. Like some of the more painful times of my life have been times when I didn't listen. I didn't listen to my wife when she had concerns. And I didn't listen to mentors when they had concerns. And why didn't I listen? I, 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 think, I, I think at the time I would say that I would say, well, I'm, I'm hearing the concerns. And sure, they're valid, they're valid. It's just doesn't apply to me because I'm going to do things differently, you know? And that's what we see with Peter. Like, I'd, Peter, I think, wouldn't be surprised to hear that the others around the table might not do what's required of them. In fact, the other gospel accounts record him saying that. It's like, they might, dis, they might abandon you, real popular guy around the table. They might abandon you, but I'm not going to do that, you know? So the gospel humbles us. 
It lets us see the truth related to our inability that we might see the power of Jesus' ability. And it's a reminder that we need every week that we might walk according to it by God's power in his spirit, which is why we come to the table, to remind one another. And so if you're a believer, I invite you now. um, If you're a believer in Jesus, come forward and proclaim by taking these elements back to your seats, Christ's body broken, his blood shed, and his declaration here at the cross, it is finished.